0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of breakfasts for the week ending uh, November 8th. Breakfast, this is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, uh, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear Dr. Jen in her very last segment for the year. Um, She was telling us about the science behind paying gratitude for things. It's not just some weird, airy-fairy fad. There Mm. is real hard facts about why paying gratitude is good for you. Um, And we also had a chat about muck-up day.
1: Very exciting. Also, um, Simone Baldy came in to review Terminator Dark Fate. It sucks. Uh, (laughs) 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 Apparently. Uh, And also um, had a chat about um, when you come home to find – um, people are at home and also just reminiscing about the times we we're in share houses. Mm,
2: I told you about a bath of spiders, mm-hmm. which is as terrifying as it sounds. <laughs> and we spoke to Mona Eltahawi uh, about the Feminist Ideas Festival, Broadside, and her book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls.
3: Triple. Ah.
1: Welcome uh, to the Monday morning of breakfasts where a lot of people have taken a long, <laughs> long weekend. And uh, so, a special shout out to anyone that is. Up and getting ready to go to work. Totally, totally feel you. Um, also to the people that are up, going to work and then going back to their holiday after after they finish work. That's me. I'm going to drive back to Venus Bay after this. Straight after
0: this. What a you, you have Pretty a dream much. run as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a good point.
0: Yeah, no yeah. traffic for you
1: i will be all right. I um I went to um Sydney on on the weekend. Um, oh, I forgot you did. You, oh, yeah. my God, I forgot. Yeah, it's been a big weekend. I'm um, to be honest, I feel like I'm um, uh, having an emotional come <laughs> 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 uh, Anyway, uh, I will absolutely talk um more about what you know my gig in Sydney, um, but I had we had um friends that came and stayed. It's just in in Venice Bay. But they went down on on Friday and I got there on Saturday, um, Saturday afternoons. But we had a really lovely night on Saturday night. Um, Just kind of, um, you know, had a few wines. And um, these are two friends that are getting married next month. Um, So, and there was just a lot of wedding planning happening. And, and yeah, because... Kath's, you know, they're celebrating, So Kath's trying to find, you know, just working out the plans of the day and also um, working out what they're going to talk about. So just hearing their story of how they met and all that, it was just like, oh, it's just really nice and and lovely. It was a really, really pleasant evening. I've always wondered Um.
0: how you work through – a friend of mine got married recently and her and her partner have this really kind of elaborate – fairy tale meeting where they met and then they didn't see each other and they tried to oh. find each other and they and the way that the celebrant told it was so extravagant and exciting that I went I never want to have to tell our story in front of in front of people like, I think yeah. there's a real gift in being a celebrant and taking someone's story but theirs just sounded so like per- sounded like the perfect love story yeah and I was right. like god Andrea, ours would be like Broke up twice, <laughs> mm. then, you know, and I was, I was just wondering, like, is,
1: or, did Kath yeah. find it
0: challenging? Was there anything where they were like, and this happened, and Kath went, oh, I have
1: to well, work my well,
0: way around that?
1: No, you just leave that bit out. Yeah,
0: right, okay.
1: You know, yeah. do some editing. I just, You're a good it, editor. Yeah, yeah,
0: true, true,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: it, it, there's, I worry that people stay together for the story, like to honour. Mm, to honour the to story. Honor the meaning. Yeah, yeah. Even though they hate each other's guts. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's not a um, problem with me, and Andrew. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've certainly heard, heard stories where um, it's like, oh, you you don't have one yet. Like it's oh. not there yet. Oh,
0: like they're so freshly together yeah. that there isn't a story. Yeah. That's great. See, Andrew and I have been together so long that it's like the story is complex and winding. Mm. And every time I go to a wedding, I hear these beautiful stories told by celebrants. And I think there's got to be more to this. Mm. But you just got this gift of making it sound like a perfect
1: I think you just got to find, sale. you know, the right, yeah, the right story. Maybe, maybe your origin story isn't your love story. Yes, right. You know? right. the fact that you're still together true. after breaking up so many times. Top yeah, we yeah. were
2: young. Okay. Yeah. The grim perseverance yeah, is what's yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: I hope he's asleep. But um,
2: that's the thing, like you know, because Jesse and our know, my story is not. I don't think it's great, but but the. <laughs> But then, like, uh, last night she was trying to get there. Because we've just moved in together. Yeah. And so there's the bath. Uh, you know, this bath that i uh, anyway Anyway. We... Oh, the spa. Well, the spa oh, bath. Oh, yeah. yeah, The spa bath. So there was a decision to christen the bath. Like, use bath. it. Have yeah. a bath. Oh, Jesus. I I didn't know. And anyway, so Jesse feels... I'm going the shit, Before <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Slashed. <laughs> uh, the, so... You know, Jesse cleans it and then fills it up and then turns the jets on, and then out it just oh, no. bursts out all these spiders and dead <gasps> oh, oh, insects. Like, no, oh, no. <laughs> go in the- oh, Daniel get <laughs> out! Oh, oh, god. It's like a horror movie
1: of what like you
2: swimming insect corpses.
1: Talk. Oh my. How many? How many? Clumpy spider? cobwebs. Oh god. <laughs>
2: Oh. It's affecting my veins, Yeah. earwigs, and all this. Oh. I don't
0: know. Were you in the bath? You no, in the no, bath? no, thank God. God. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So were they that, alive or they were dead? They were dead. Oh.
2: Well, they were dead. They up. were dead they're after hot. exactly. After being shot out yeah. into yeah. space, yeah.
1: yeah, they're probably having Shock a their lovely lives. time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is a great new home. I love <laughs> yeah, this. No it's We're going to live here oh. forever. Oh. Yeah,
0: forever.
2: <laughs>
1: you never know when your time's up. Oh wow! That is horrifying. Yeah, Waste as well. Like you, it's not like you just go, scoop everything out and then hop in the bath. No, there was no bath at that night. Oh. No. What did you? Who's job it. was it to scoop yeah. the
2: cut? Cu- cu- well, I, I, I mean, I figured Jesse started it. I was, I had oh, stuff on. <laughs> well, I, I think we'll let them because I was like, well, put in some uh, Dettol or I don't know anything that will kill more. Yeah. You know cool. insects, and so I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's not. I don't think there's a fested or fetid pond
0: inside no, the house. No. I think
2: she's. I think she's emptied it.
0: I, I love I, the idea that you just seen that and got all right. I'm out and just left the room. You started. I don't snow. know.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I don't know. But, it, but yeah, like I, I, I appreciate the effort, and I'll, I'll take care of phase two. Maybe I'll run the bath next time. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then if there's new homes, and the daddy spider yeah. comes <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I also saw two spiders uh, in another part of the house, and like the downstairs bathroom. I'm feeling a bit worried about your yeah, house Yeah, 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 and I'm worried that maybe the, uh, the the pest control gas is wearing thin. Anyway, so I but I, I couldn't reach them to kill them. They were tiny, and so I got what kind a, of
0: spiders were they?
2: I, they, they weren't, I think they were like dead long or something. Oh, okay. It's, it's
1: just it's okay. Totally harmless. Yes. Well,
2: now I feel bad about what I did
1: to them. Oh, do you spray do you them? Do? Do you... Did you spray them? No. Oh, did you flame throw them? That's right. <laughs> yeah. You Is flamed
0: that? daddy long legs.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't want. It's it's an Australian. Tanya, what's wrong horror. with you? <laughs> what
0: else am I going to do? Daddy <laughs> long legs that are like pleasant, wouldn't hurt a fly. Well, would very much yeah. hurt a fly, but wouldn't
2: hurt a human. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. But like where, where there's you smoke,
0: just, there's fire? No, you just let them eat the mosquitoes.
1: Yeah. Right, I should have let them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He I he did finds think about it. You, what did you flame throw good. them with? You got the more and he lit it up. No, well, I didn't.
2: No. Find yeah, go on. Oh, no. What did you do? It was, well, it was the thing that you'd light the stove with. Oh, oh you, you
0: just. You, you just didn't fly, them you just yeah,
2: yeah, I wasn't like a nutter. I you are. But about.
0: why? I think that's what sociopaths do
2: yeah, But I can't
1: reach them. I'm they sorry. Were,
0: they were like in a corner. Whenever I watch a horror movie, it starts with the.
1: What were you saying The when sociopath you were burning, burning spiders as and a kid? Before you burnt them, did you just look at them for ages, just turning the flame on and off? I didn't give them a speech. <laughs> <on and off. laughs>
2: I didn't have any final words. I wasn't the a bonfire. <laughs> uh, it was very matter of fact. I, I mean, I, do you want to go to anywhere in your house and see cobwebs? Is that what some? Is I'm that just what you want? Vacuum them up. Vacuuming. oh my God, yeah. then they yeah.
0: live in the vacuum
2: yeah exactly and it's noisy and uh no, I just't
1: f- I don't, I don't get
2: close enough to them I exactly them. I thought I, I, anyway I, so I destroyed their home I can't believe you burnt them well I couldn't reach them any other way yeah, just yeah
0: I just feel like you I mean the, the, to be honest, the thing that you like the stove with doesn't extend your arm by that much oh it's like half a foot yeah, but like sos a, Stick or anything, yeah. yeah,
1: or just if you can't reach a oh, broom, that means they can't reach you, right?
2: Okay, and so therefore,
1: unless I it's a have, huntsman, we should have all lived jump, in harmony. Yeah. Jump on your face, okay?
2: Oh, I feel terrible. I knew at the time that it was. <laughs> no, nah, it's all right. <laughs> well, no, we, get rid of the spiders we, as you
1: like. We feel good that you feel terrible because yeah. <laughs> we were very concerned. Oh, Triple
2: Mona el is an award-winning author, activist, commentator and one of today's thought leaders on global feminism. Her first book, Headscarves and Hymens, led international discussion on women and Islam and she's in Melbourne with her latest, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, ahead of appearances at this weekend's Wheeler Centre Broadside Feminist Ideas Festival. Mona, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hey, It's great to be back. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, this is, as you say, not your uh, first rodeo in Australia and this is a bit of a whirlwind tour. Do you? We crave outsider impressions of, of our country. What are you? What are you picking up this time around? Uh, I'm picking up that the men are
3: very upset with me, <laughs> <Very> <laughs> upset.
2: and I'm very happy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, was
3: that? Did Q and A spark that off? It, it was Q and A, but it's been happening every time I come back to Australia. So I've developed somewhat of a reputation with the misogynists in your country, <laughs> and I'm always delighted to return and just poke them some more. Is
0: this? Are you used to this? Does this happen every time you go to a country, and this is you're going to go and you talk? Is this the response generally from the media in the country?
3: I mean, I, I get it from all groups. You know, um, yeah. my part of the world, the Middle East and North Africa, my new part of the world, North America, wherever I go. I I was in Nigeria last weekend. So it, I'm, I am used to getting it because, I mean, this. I say, you know, feminism has to be global because patriarchy is global. Mm. Mm. What, what was going on in Nigeria? I was speaking at an arts and literature festival called Ake. It, it was my fourth trip. And it's incredible because it's the biggest arts festival on the continent. And it's become this most incredible queer space. It's like all the queer Nigerians who, who usually have to be very, very careful because of homophobic laws that were pushed into place by white Christian evangelicals from the United States. And yeah. speaking of which, your prime minister. Hello. Mm. But in Nigeria, this, this literature festival has become this great queer space all the young people there come to and just kind of imbibe all this arts and creativity. Wow! Uh, what there's a middle finger on the
2: front cover. So you and the profanity plays a, a, a role, is one of the sins. Um, what uh, what is the role of
3: respectability in public
2: debate? Do you think?
3: <sighs> Well, the point that I make in my book is that words like respect, respectability, decorum, civility, politeness, all of these, these are terms that were invented by powerful white men for spaces that they thought that powerful white men would always control and they never imagined the rest of us would be in those spaces. And so one of the people that I highlight the most is a feminist scholar from Uganda called Dr. Stella Nianzi, who's currently in prison for offending the three decades, so uh, the dictator of her country who's been in power for more than three decades. And Stella Nyanzi is a proponent of this wonderful tradition in Uganda called radical rudeness that approaches profanity as a political tool and in the 1940s when the Brits colonized Uganda um, you know these respectable quote-unquote white Victorian Christian men who went over to Uganda from England and their local allies were always kind of shoving respectability you know across everything like you have to be polite you have to use decorum and the anti-colonial movement in Uganda was deliberately profane as a political form of resistance. So that's what I see Stella Nianzi doing and that's why I'm also deliberately and very consciously profane. I mean, one of the things that upsets people about my appearances on Q&A is how many times I curse, how many times I swear. And I do it deliberately because I refuse to be polite. I refuse to be polite because I consider profanity the the verbal equivalent of civil disobedience.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm a comedian and um, I think that profanity chapter was one of my favourites because um, uh, it's the one thing that sets me apart from men in comedy. It's you know if I go into a tough gig, it's um, usually like guys will look at it and go, "Oh, this crowd they just want they just want rough stuff and they want dirty and they want swearing." And but if I do it, it's like, "No, no, we don't want it from a woman." So there's no way I can win. There's no way I can be you know do well at that. So and um, and also uh, you know I do you know, when I do swear it's for a deliberate reason and the idea of being able to be able to, um, you know, deliberately put that in there to, to get a rise, you know, Which is is something that you do
3: very well. It's a political tool. It really Mm. is. Because what I remind people in the chapter on violence is that patriarchy not only controls our bodies. And when I say ours, you know, I say in the book that it's the seven necessary sins for women and girls. But I make it very clear that I'm also speaking about non-binary people, queer people, anybody who falls out of of kind of the safe space of patriarchy. Because patriarchy is only safe for a select group of people. And so those of us who are not part of that select group of people who are saved from the the ravages of patriarchy, not only does patriarchy control our bodies, but it also controls what we can and can't say. So the the space for us to move is kind of literally and figuratively really, really tiny. So I also use profanity very consciously and in a very political way, because like I say, it's the verbal equivalent of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm.
0: You also, I mean, violence has been a big part of what you talk about. You talk about it in the book. There's a scene at the start of the book, we talk about being sexually assaulted in the club and then literally climbing on top of your aggressor and, and hitting them and talking about how that, what that gave to you and how, and how that you felt you kind of got something back from using violence. Yeah. In Australia right now, we have, many protests occurring and these protests are being framed as stepping over the line because they use violence if violence is used and generally that seems to be the way that society feels about protests if you if you if you are violent then that negates your argument that that
3: you've stepped over a line how do you counter that well, my first question would be, who created that line? Because I'm an, an I'm an anarchist, so I'm not interested in upholding the authority of the state. And it usually is the authority that, that draws that line for us. So the state has given itself a monopoly over violence, and it's handed part of that monopoly to the police, and the police is mostly... so. And then, and the state, depending on where you are, I call patriarchy an octopus, and the head of that octopus is misogyny, and each of the eight tentacles are the, the systems of oppression that we often talk about... When when we speak about intersectionality so let's take a country like australia which i say very much like the united states is a white supremacist country so the state is a white supremacist state which has a monopoly on violence and it gives part of that monopoly to the police which is a largely patriarchal white supremacist force and so on and so forth and then from the police who themselves are often violent abusers, whether against the people they arrest or in their own homes, that then monopoly over violence is given to a select group of men. So all that, that, that monopoly over violence that trickles down, my question is always, who drew that line? It wasn't, I didn't draw that line and, and no one consulted me when that line was being drawn. And then I'm told I have to stay within that line, even if I want to defend myself. So like, oh, OK, no, we're going to part ways now because of violence. And men never sit down with each other and ask each other about the violence that they subject on us. So whenever we're fighting back, we're always like, no, no, no. You've got to be nonviolent. So they're asking us basically to fight back with our hands tied behind our backs, and it's just, it's unconscionable that it's. So I, I deliberately draw a disturbing scenario in the, the start of my chapter on violence, where I say, imagine that we declare war on patriarchy, and I'm not saying, you know, go out there and kill a hundred men now, but I'm saying, imagine that we did that until patriarchy said, okay, we're going to negotiate. Just for drawing that imaginary scenario, people are shocked and horrified. And I say to them, you don't even need to imagine the kind of violence that we're subjected to every day. It's factual. Mm -hmm. So why is an imaginary scenario of violence so disturbing, but the actual day-to-day violence that we're subjected to just something that is the backdrop to our lives? And what would that negotiation look like were it to come to pass? Well, first of all, I, I would be surprised that, that patriarchy would be able to negotiate amongst themselves who would come to speak to us. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they're so, they're, they're so um, invested in just a select group of like mostly, you know, very white, very powerful, very rich men who who run everything. So first of all, who's going to come and sit down with us? And then second of all, it's like, uh, you know, um, Asata Shakur, who was one of the proponents of the black liberation movement, who now lives in exile in Cuba because of the white supremacy of the the United States. She very famously said, and I quote her in my book, throughout history, no one has ever been able to achieve their liberation by appealing to the moral imperatives of their oppressor. So what is that negotiation? And and that's a great question. You know, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the men in power sitting down. Try, you know, agreeing, willingly agreeing. To give up their power—it's—it's almost an impossible scenario, isn't it? So again and again, I'm—I'm asked as a woman, and we, you know, women, girls, non-binary people, queer people, everyone who falls out of that circle of power—you know—we're basically banging our head against a wall because they're not going to give up that power willingly. So for how long must we appeal to the kindness and the gentleness of men until they stop murdering and raping us? Mm. And what about the? There's a chapter on ambition. Uh, What what role? does ambition play in the in issues around feminism? Well, usually when, when we hear talk of ambition, it's usually ambition that's framed in a very capitalist way and in a very elitist way. So it's usually, you can have the corner office, you can make a million dollars in five years, you can retire at 40 and have all your stocks and bonds and I don't know what. What kind of, you know, who has access to that kind of ambition? It's, it's ridiculous. So The point I make about ambition is that ambition is the belief that I am more than what patriarchy will allow me to be. And and so what does that mean in a day to day uh, basis? So what does ambition mean for a working class girl? Uh, And I mentioned uh, a Latinx woman in California who comes from a working class background who wanted to go to the University of California, which is considered one of the prestigious universities and her white teacher in high school told her to aim lower. So that's the kind of ambition I'm talking about, where it's not just about wanting to be rich and going to all the right places and and becoming and joining that global elite. It's about the belief that you. You deserve more and you are more than patriarchy tells you. And part of that ambition is saying I deserve attention and, and, and I am, again, intentionally arrogant. So one of the things I say in the book is people are constantly asking me, who do you think you are? And I say to them, I am one of the most influential feminists in the world today. That's who I think I am. And then, of course, the men are like, ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Do you, when you, talk about, you kind of talk about capitalism and the role that it plays? To, sma- to smash patriarchy, does capitalism have to be smashed as well? How interwoven are these things?
3: Absolutely, because capitalism is one of the eight tentacles of that octopus. So I always tell people, imagine patriarchy, because patriarchy is universal. And even in countries that are not solely built on capitalism, there is patriarchy. So the head of that octopus is misogyny. And and we have to consider um, um, patriarchy as this ideology that uses misogyny to promote itself. So the head of the octopus is misogyny, but one of the eight tentacles is capitalism. And the reason that I put patriarchy before capitalism is that sometimes people will say to me, don't you think we have to get rid of capi- um, capitalism first and then we'll get rid of patriarchy? And I don't think so because um, Audre Lorde, the black lesbian poet and intellectual, has said in her book of essays, well, she said many years ago, she's dead now, sadly, but she said that, you know, she, wherever she went, whether it was a socialist country or a capitalist country, but she especially focuses on socialist countries that were not driven by capitalism, that they're um, fighting capitalism and they're kind of um, downgrading capitalism, um, so to speak, did not end sexism or racism so sometimes you'll get you know kind of like the leftist bros they will say to you yeah yeah we got to get rid of capitalism before anything else and I'll say no because when you look at your analysis of how society works when, when you just talk about capitalism without a gender and without a, a racial lens you're just talking basically about one group of men being liberated from another group of men and I'm not interested in that battle of the cisgendered penises against each other can I say penises on no, that right? yeah, the radio fabulous I'm, I'm just never <laughs> sure in Australia now it's like, everyone's like oh my god
0: Mona's so rude Triple R, anything goes. I think. Yeah. Oh, I
3: can see. Fuck yeah. oh, yeah. yes. that. Right. All right, go ahead.
2: surprise you
1: hadn't already. Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, and
2: are you are you across? Uh, given your relationship with Egypt and your heritage,
3: is, what what do you think is the future for Egypt? Well, Egypt right now... I mean, like, the last sentence was, you know, the cisgendered penis contest. (laughs) That's what the revolution in Egypt, sadly, has become. Because it has not had that gender um, equality and liberation at its heart. The revolution... This revolution is something that we were waiting for our entire lives. I think I spoke about the revolution the last time I was here. So, of course, I'm I'm a big supporter of the revolution. My arms were broken and I was sexually assaulted during that revolution. And I continue to believe in it. But I believe that the revolution has truly devolved into one group of men very cisgendered, heterosexual group of men fighting another group of men. And that's not my revolution, because that that, that falls into what I call the trifecta of misogyny. And this is is what we see playing out again and again, by which, you know, men say to me, Mona, this isn't the time to talk about feminism. Nobody's free. I say to them, it's true, nobody's free because the state oppresses everyone. But the state, the street and the home together... That's a trifecta of misogyny. Oppress women. Men are complicit in the oppression of women because they use their power in public spaces and in the home. So I now go around saying whether it's Egypt, whether it's the United States, I want something actually much more powerful than equality. Because to say I want equality is to say that I want to be equal with men who themselves are not free. And by their own admission, they're not free. Men are subject to capitalism, racism, ableism, homophobia. So I want something much more powerful than equality. I want to be free. Mm-hmm. And whether that's Egypt or the United States... Nobody's free in those countries, and I want to be free. And I think it's this is where me, people often say, well, you know, you need to remind men more and more that patriarchy hurts them too. I say, you know what, I don't give a flying fuck about men. If they don't realise that they're not free, they've got to go sort it out themselves. I'm much more invested in those of us who are not protected and don't have safe spaces among patriarchy. So this applies to Egypt and everywhere else I go. Mm. Um, what, does, sorry, okay. discre- what does freedom mean to you? freedom means I own my body and that's something that I write about in my first book and that I carry on to my second book it's going to be the subject on my third book too I think it's a deceptively simple declaration to say I own my body but when I say I own my body it means that it belongs to me not the state, not the street, not the home my family, the church, the mosque, the temple, whatever because I truly believe that the most powerful revolution is that one that starts with the body because when you see whether, whether it's the religious kind of compulsion to control what happens in wombs regardless of whose bodies those wombs inhabit or who we can and can't have sex with or who we can desire and who's allowed to have pleasure, who's allowed to have desire. I think this is truly where the revolution begins. So the revolution begins in the body and the revolution begins and freedom is at the heart of that declaration, I own my body. Because all of the dictators that I'm fighting against and all those tentacles of the octopus, they're most potent and powerful in the home. And in that, in the home, it's, it's like that's the ultimate battleground or the kind of where my body is the proxy battlefield. Because the home and, and the street and the state are all fighting to control my body. So that, that's my, the freedom there, to be able to move through those spaces with complete ownership of my body.
0: I've got friends who are raising young boys and they struggle a little bit with how to um, help them form their identity in a world where they're strong feminists and that's their agenda. How do you raise a young uh, man right now in it when you're trying to smash the patriarchy? I think
3: in a way that basically uh, fights and resists heteronormativity in all the ways possible. Because I think there's something that is truly broken about the way that heteronormativity has socialised So, so many of us. And I think that we as again, when I say we, I'm talking about women and girls, non-binary, queer people, those of us who do not benefit from a very, very cisgendered, heteronormative kind of approach to life. We are much uh, we get that awareness of the harms of heteronormativity much earlier, I think, than cishet men. Cisgender, heterosexual men. And I think this is what we have to, we have to alert boys to. One of the, the studies that I mention in my book is something called the Global Adolescent Survey that was conducted across the world in 15 different countries. The Global South, the so-called West, across the world. And they found that by the age of 10, girls had accepted... That the, the the idea that they were weak and vulnerable, and boys had fully embraced the idea that they were invincible and they could do whatever they want. So, and then when they traced what that meant for girls, it meant that you know they became depressed, that they were self-harming, that they were told that if you're sexually assaulted, it's your fault, that your primary role in life is to look pretty and to do chores. Whereas with boys, by the age of 14, they they developed this idea that they were immortal, and that and and the way that it played out when it came to drug consumption, reckless driving, just basically risking their lives at every moment because they were told and they believed that they were immortal and, and they were allowed to go on adventures is a serious risk to their lives. Now, again, as I was saying earlier, I don't care about boys, honestly, because <laughs> all my time is consumed with the rest of us. So I think that if if parents truly cared about saving their boys from the ravages of patriarchy, they would start to teach them the opposite. They would start, and I, I hate to confine anyone or break the wings of anyone or, you know, like um, th- this natural kind of beautiful wildness that all children have. I hate the idea that we have, to br- we have to break it. But I think the parents have to start telling their boys, teaching their boys that heteronormativity is not your friend. And you cannot go out there and think that all of these things that it socialized you into is going to help you grow up to be a, 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 a healthy... Uh, well kind of um, individuated um, adult we we have to fight against that and so I tell people and this, this sounds incredibly naive and probably easier to say than to do but be less cisgendered in the way that you move through the world let's raise our boys to be queer in the best sense of that word, because I mentioned in a chapter on lust that queerness is the ultimate resistance when it comes to patriarchy and heteronormativity, because of the chaos and the liberation that it's—they're like Molotov cocktails that it throws into the heart of the patriarchy. So let's raise all our children, but specifically the boys, to be even queerer than we've, than we've ever imagined.
2: Well, you've got more feathers to ruffle around the country, so we have to let <laughs> <laughs> you go. Uh, Mona El-Tahawi is in Melbourne for this weekend's Wheeler's Centre Broadside Feminist Ideas Festival. You can go to wheelerscentre.com for tickets and more details. And a new book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, is out now through Hardy Grant. Mona, thank you so much for coming back.
3: Thank you all for having me. It was been, it's been great.
2: Triple R.
1: We're in science Elastic tubes and pots and pans Bits and pieces and the magic How
2: lucky are we to have Dr Jen here for Weird Science on a Wednesday?
4: And how lucky am I? (laughs) We were just saying off air that we actually really quite enjoy chatting every week. And I'm quite sad. I mean, I'm very excited to be going away next week. But I will miss you guys. I hope you have lots of fun science discussions in my absence. For the rest of the year, you won't be back. No, because I think the day I get back from Antarctica is the day of the last your last um, oh yes the, the outside broadcast and I think I fly in at like eleven o'clock that morning so oh, I'll no. I mean I could come and find you for some Bloody Marys so <laughs> yeah. <friend>. oh, hello <laughs> wow. yeah maybe that would be a good idea how long are you Antar- in Antarctica for uh, the whole trip is four weeks but there's a couple of days in Argentina kind of on either side so I think it's about three weeks actually on a ship on a ship the whole time mm. wow yeah it's gonna be really amazing I'm getting to teach this incredible bunch of um, women who are part of the Homeward Bound project who um, are coming together to learn more about how to kind of be effective and strategic leaders and change the world. So I get to be part of the team teaching about communication and visibility and it's going to be really incredible.
2: What's one of the uh, things that you've bought for the trip that you didn't anticipate or that you'll never have to use again?
4: Uh let's just say I haven't got organised yet, having just returned from another overseas trip. I've bought thermals. Is that a good start? That's that a very is a good start. good start. Yeah, and polarized sunglasses. That seems like also a good start. Ah. <laughs> But, yeah, I'll try and get some photos through. I have no idea if we're going to have any internet access. But if I can, I will send you photos of icebergs. Thank oh. you. Wonderful. That's, that's yes. the rule, right? yeah Icebergs. We're very grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful too. Nice segue. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I wanted to talk about, well, I was trying to think about what would be, a you know, a good topic to, to end the year on a thoughtful note. I do try and be thoughtful. And I was thinking about the fact that I so much got on the bandwagon about gratitude. You know, I, I make my kids write gratitude journals. We talk at dinner about gratitude. Do you guys do any of that stuff?
0: Are you a a Brené Brown? Is that her name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a
4: big Brené Brown person. In fact, I get to teach a little bit about Brené Brown's work in Antarctica, which is very exciting. But do any of you guys have any gratitude practices or is it just me who got on that Um,
1: bandwagon? Like just being thankful for what you've got and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah, I don't write anything Dampers.
4: Well, I don't think you have to write anything down. It's more just kind of taking notes. The whole idea of gratitude is that recognising that there's good stuff in your life and then secondly recognising that some of that has come from outside of yourself and that other people have contributed to that and, you know, experiencing a sense of thankfulness for that. Mm. Daniel's that... looking thoughtful. Are you a gratitude person? No,
2: I mean I'm, I'm in favour of gratitude. I, I don't have a ritualised. <laughs> You're not anti-gratitude. <laughs> no, no, no.
4: Um, but, yeah, does it? Does it have effects?
2: Like, is it? Well, that's
4: what I wanted to look into because me, the scientist who just totally got on the bandwagon and believed, you know, the vague headlines I'd read saying it's really good to practice gratitude and and did all that, you know, whether you write it down or you do it in your head or you use an app, and so I decided it was time to get honest and actually read the research. And I'm pleased to say there is a huge amount of research out there backing up the benefits of this practice mm. of gratitude, and it doesn't really matter how you do it. You know, it can be just before you go to bed thinking in your mind I'm so grateful for my partner who made dinner tonight or who did the dishes or gee I'm glad my boss did X, or you know whatever it is there's sort of more ritualized ways of doing it if you keep a notebook or an app or people um, you know who write a letter every day or an email you know take two minutes to send an email every day to somebody just to express gratitude for them Um, you know there's so many different things you can do but the point is that yes the research is really solid and it's been going on for quite a long time everything from looking at how um, gratitude breeds results. So there were some really big studies around September 11 and looking at people who came out of that trauma um, better, often had gratitude practices, work looking at the experience of post-traumatic stress disorder with Vietnam veterans, you know, lots of study, really simple things, you know, having two groups of people, one people keep a journal every night for three weeks, jotting down three things they're grateful for and the other group who don't try and keep everything else constant between the two groups Um, and at the end of the period, the people who wrote down what they were grateful for um, felt much happier, you know, just generally feeling a sense of satisfaction with life and greater well being um, but there 's been lots of medical stuff as well so As well as things like feeling happier and more optimistic and all that sort of stuff, Um, less anxiety, less depression, less anger, less aggression, Um, a whole lot of markers of a more effective immune system, Mm -hmm. Um, people having lower resting blood pressure and physiologically responding to stress in a better way. So, you know, basically getting less stressed um, if they have a gratitude practice, Um, better cardiovascular health, all these things, you know, you name it, someone's researched it because it's been such a hot topic and the evidence is good. Yeah, so, how different is can you be? Can you pay
0: gratitude or practice these gratitude things without being positive? So, if I'm feeling depressed or anxious, can I sit down and write the things that I am grateful about and not be feeling positive and still have the same effects?
4: The evidence suggests yes, that even oh. the unhappiest people can become a little bit happier and less anxious and less depressed by um, paying attention to things that they are feeling positive about. So you can be sitting there feeling really miserable and really low and finding it incredibly difficult to think of anything that you're looking forward to. But the act of thinking, well, hey, at least I have somewhere to live or at least I know that I'm gonna have a meal tonight or at least I know I've got a friend and I can give them a call. The act of noticing that being aware of that Mm. can make a big difference. Do you remember, I don't know how long ago it was, we talked about the negativity bias and the fact that our brains are kind of wired. We've evolved um, that the way we stay safe is to pay really strong attention to anything that's potentially dangerous or risky for us. Mm. And so negative stuff sticks more in our brains than positive stuff. This is kind of an antidote to that because by thinking about something positive, you're um, effectively, I mean, people talk about rewiring the brain all the time, but it is having a positive effect on your brain by making your brain pay more attention to positive stuff, mm. um, it's it's you know generating these positive neurotransmitters that we talk about, you know, dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. It's bringing some of that into your system. It
2: sounds, in a way, a almost secular scientific vindication
0: of prayer.
1: Yeah. Oh, I was about to say, it
4: does I
0: was totally about to say that. I was like, well, cause as a kid, I was raised Catholic. We were taught to pray. And at night you would pray and you'd say thank you for this and this and this and
4: that was what prayer was. Yep, it's exactly what we're talking about. And this has got a really long history, which is kind of funny that it's become such a, you know, such a um, buzzword in the self-help literature so recently. I found this great quote from a Stoic philosopher who was born in fifty A.D. and he said, "He is a man of sense." Let's change that to, "He's a they are a person of sense <laughs> who does not grieve for what they don't have but rejoices in what they do have." Mm. Which is a really simple idea, isn't it? So even in the worst of times, if you can find something to be grateful for, then all of the evidence suggests that um, it can actually help. And one of the things that I found really strong, thinking about you know kids growing up now and social media and how hard it is, one of the things that's been shown to really undermine people's self-esteem is social comparison, You know, comparing yourself with other people. Mm. And there's evidence that gratitude really helps with that. Because rather than feeling jealous of somebody who has things you don't have, have the practice of gratitude makes it easier for you just to be really happy for somebody else who's experiencing success or have something that you don't have um So there's this really nice idea that if we can encourage kids to experience gratitude, they're going to be less, you know, suffer less from this constant Instagram comparisons and all that sort of Mm. stuff. And there's also really nice evidence that it makes people more generous. So there's this whole thing called pro-social behaviour, which is where you do things that basically help other people. Um, And when you experience the sense of gratitude, when you just think, God, I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful, you know, Daniel's sitting there smiling at me today and listening to what I'm saying, (laughs) I'm likely to be more generous to you and more kind. To you, and in turn, you're likely to do that to me. So, mm. you know, it's this whole kind of feel good, nice, positive, positive stuff. Do you cycle. think your children will maintain the practice? Oh, probably not because I've made them do it. <laughs> They'll example, be grateful when it stops. Yeah, probably an example of really bad parenting. <laughs> one thing I did find, I have to tell you really quickly though, maybe there's one bad thing about gratitude and that is that when people experience gratitude, they feel sweet and they feel like eating sweet food. So I found this one paper of saying ah. the problem with gratitude is that you might end up putting on weight because really? you feel more like eating sweet food when you're immersed in these feelings of goodness. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, for sure. I thought that was just lovely. That's fantastic. Stick. It, yeah. are you,
2: will, you, will you take any food with you Antac- to Antarctica? Well, I think i better take some chocolate.
4: I'm sure. Here. I'll be feeling grateful the whole time, right? Yeah,
2: that journal will be chockers.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: Um, just thank you so much for um Yeah, it's a shame that we won't see you at
4: uh, the end of the year. I'll be thinking of you guys. Yeah. I'm very grateful. Have an awesome few weeks. i and... grateful for you. Oh. 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 Can we just have a big love fest now? Mm, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Right. Right. Stop Jim. it now. <laughs> Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app.
1: It's around that time of the year that um, mark-up day has happened or maybe it's still happened at your school. It's probably already happened. There's a few on last week. Traditionally, it is held um, at the end of exams. Um, come back, come back to school, wreak havoc, then get out. Then you get mm. out of
0: there. What are you going to do? I've graduated.
1: Yeah, exactly. Has
0: Muck Update ever not been controversial? Because... I graduated what fifteen years ago or something, mm. and it was controversial then. Oh. And our school was trying to ban it, and it was you know don't do this and don't do that. But still, fifteen years on, there's news stories about it.
1: It's so, but it's all it's the same thing. It's funny. Pedestrian has an article um, about, and they ask people to send in stories of why their um, school cancelled has cancelled muck up day, ah. and you read them all, and it's just like oh yeah, the, it's all the classic things that um, you've either seen done 20, 30 years ago yeah. or it's an urban myth. Well, the urban,
0: was the urban myth of the cow being walked up the stairs? Yep,
1: that's in there.
0: At an exclusive private boys' school and I never knew whether it actually happened or not.
1: Yeah, there's, one, yeah, there's a story about a cow, there's a story about the sheep that are labelled one, two, three and five. Oh, yes. Oh, where's the fourth sheep? Yeah. Whoa. I think
2: you disassemble a can't reassemble it in an office.
1: Oh that's a good one. Is mm. that a real thing? Yeah. That's so much effort. Yeah. yeah. But
2: it, but that, I mean my I mean I don't think anybody implicated in our up day ever admitted to it. Um so therefore we got away with it. But uh we the night before the day um there was a battalion of us who we dressed up well we didn't we actually we made we it sounds ominous but we dressed in colors that we so we couldn't be seen at night. Right. And um, we, looking like camouflage. We camouflage. Thank you. Okay. We... <laughs> 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 Did that work? Did yeah, it it right <laughs> um, and we oh. we got around town as ma- we loaded up as many garden gnomes as we could find. I love oh, this. Yeah, as and we we just got so many garden. Gnomes. Oh my god,
0: this is such a classic
2: prank. And so we were running around, you know, and the the idea was to return the garden gnomes. Yes. But so we we would go up to inside people's gardens and take their garden home, borrow them for the night. Sure. And then we put them in a ton of cars, filled up the cars, and then went to school that was locked and managed to circumvent security and climb fences and strategically put the garden gnomes all around the school. That is so cool.
0: It's mm. like a magical prank. I that's yeah. what I thought. It.
2: People would turn up and they'll be like, oh, it's a Wonderland. Yeah, that's yeah. a fun prank. That is
0: really, really good. And do people, how was
2: it responded to? Terribly. No, no. I mean, no. The, the people loved it. But, the, the you know, naturally the authority figures have to express disapproval. But the older you get, I mean, my sister's a teacher and she was saying you know there are kid cuz mark updale was banned at her school and you know there are kids who are might booby trap lockers where you op- you cannot help when you open the locker that you know some liquid falls down off it right. Right. and so it takes some kind of engineering ingenuity and the teachers they can't help but be impressed to some yeah, of this stuff that is
0: really impressive
1: yeah they've learned something <laughs> Exactly. You know? <laughs> I can
0: still remember our, uh, like, the, the leader, whatever she was, the, the, the woman that led our uh, coordinator, I suppose, taking us out to her car and being like, all right, this is my car. What do you notice about my car? And this is before muck-up day and we're like, oh, I don't know, it's red and this. And she goes, see this stuff here? Everyone rub the car. And we all have to rub her car. And she goes, that's Duco. Now, do you know what egg does to Duco? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. And we were like, oh, no, tell us more. And she goes, it will burn through the duco on any car. So you think about this before you egg someone's car and you'll have to pay for the duco. And we were like, this is, a st- this is so – that was our lesson. How I
1: many – did her car get egged? Yeah. <laughs>
0: her, her car did, but everyone still went out egging. That was the big thing when we were in year 12. Get like, in the car, yeah. cover the number plates and go and egg other schools.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: Cover the number
2: so, plates. So she guys- <laughs> Don't
0: do that. Don't do that. So Juco's been illegal. phased out,
2: I suppose. Yeah, I mean, is that, I, I mean we can't be driving around stuff that gets
0: you, tarnished what with is, eggs. Surely not. And I, at the time I remember thinking, really, does eggs really
1: damage the... I, I think she took was, you to her oh. car and showed it this is my car. This is my car. <laughs> this, is my car. <laughs> this is my car. You remember this when you're going to go out egging cars. This is my car. It <laughs> was
0: just like so us all standing around, like all these girls standing around rubbing her car too. Like, it was such a strange moment.
1: <laughs> In some gloves as well. We well. yeah, um, we didn't have one. I think our school was either it, either we'd been told we were banned or we just didn't come up with anything good. I tried to <laughs> abseil down down the front of the school, but just didn't plan it properly. Like just found knew this other guy who was into abseiling. I went, yeah, let's ab down down the front of the school. And he That's went, right, oh, abseiling. I kind of bullied him into it. Made him bring all his equipment in, and then <laughs> and then we go up. <laughs> To um, like the to the like the front of the, it's where the teachers had their um area. Oh yeah, the the staff room. Oh, God, what's wrong with that our brains? I That's don't funny. know. Are they camouflage? <laughs> the three of
0: us. It's <laughs>
2: the, where
1: they th- wear clothes you can't
0: yeah. see them in at
1: night. <laughs> <laughs> we had to go up through the staff room. We walked through the staff room. We just kind of walked through with authority, just going, "We've got to do this thing." And they were like, oh, "All right, off you go through out to the balcony." And then we started getting harnessed up and and stuff. And then one of the teachers <laughs> came out and said, what are you doing? Like, we're going to abseil down the front of the school. And he went, no, you're not. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what a rebel. So, yeah.
1: let down. <laughs> then we left. But our teacher, like, we were supposed to do, like, there was some going to be some speeches and it was like we were on one side of the school and our principal was giving us a talk and he goes, right, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> You're going to go out there in front of the school. Uh, So-and-so from Year 11 will give a speech on behalf of the school. Geraldine Hickey will give a speech. I did do this speech. Will give a speech on behalf of Year 12. And then you are to go, leave, get out. And then from somewhere in, in like the crowd. You, no, just, he just wanted us to leave. Oh. Like, that's it. There's no more school. Get out. And then from the back of the crowd, you just hear this. But what if we want to learn? Oh, God. Anyway, that was the height of our muck-up day. Melbourne's own Triple R.
2: to see some films. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> Which and that that um stings kind of apt. Um
5: We'll say yes. I yeah, think, okay. I don't want to be a no person. Yeah,
1: right. I, I, thought, you 40 I
5: thought you meant because I
0: thought maybe because of the t-shirt that you're wearing. Because what is? She's wearing like this metal. It's like it's a, a flaming me-
5: skull. Oh, because mm. I thought
0: it said meatloaf, but it doesn't. It says lazy. But there's
5: a there's an there's a, there's a reference there. Ah, it's a good devilly face on mm. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe yes, maybe there is yes because traditionally the Terminator films involve some level of like stalking and hunting mm. ah. that, that, that that horror film soundtrack c- could evoke transpose to. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I'm sorry to, we- <laughs> <have>
2: to get <laughs> bogged down in the segue.
5: I went to the new Terminator movie. I went on instruction from the powers that be at Triple R to go and see the new Terminator movie. Otherwise, I like the rest of the movie going world. Would have avoided this obvious stink pile. But how
1: is it on? No, really? <laughs> yes. But Linda Hamilton's back. I know. Well,
5: yeah. Good. She's good. She's good. Yes, Elizabeth McCarthy. Thank you very much for that <laughs> two hours. Two hours of my life I'll never get back unless no, you requested. So anyway, there's a new Terminator film out. Uh, a another reboot of the franchise, which has suffered from um, several uh, disappointing box office uh, results in its uh, most recent iterations over the last kind of. Fifteen years.
0: Has it, What's the most recent Terminator? Because I'm really unfamiliar with the whole Terminator stories. All of it. That, yeah, even all in the, the beginning. It. Yeah, never uh, seen. Okay,
5: it. all right. So there are like five, six, Term- six Terminator, six, film? six Terminator films. Okay. The first Terminator film made by James Cameron, in, I want to say 80- eighty. Four. God. Mm. Wow. Mm. Uh, introduced us to Arnold Schwarzenegger as a um, soulless killing machine sent from the future to kill the leader, the, to kill the mother. Of the leader of the resistance, the resistance being a collection of human beings that is attempting to fight the AI uh, megalithic machine that's taken over the Earth in the uh. future. So, that AI in the future creates these killing robots, and the killing robot, the killing robot, Annie Schwarzenegger is sent back in time to kill a woman called Sarah Connor before she can give birth to the leader of the rebellion that fights the machines. Okay. Not really good with the songs. No, fiction, this is great. You're doing right? well. So that's number one. In the second film, uh, the leader of the resistance. Because she survives. She survives. Yep. Sorry, She's spoiler <laughs> <laughs> In the second film, uh, she survived. She's given birth to the leader of the resistance. There's a nice little Genesis story in terms of who the father is, but I won't get into that. You should all just watch the first movie. Um, In the second movie, John Connor is a petulant teenage boy who has been raised by a commando mother to be the leader of the future resistance, and she has been locked up uh, as insane and he's very angry at her for having filled his head with all these nonsense stories about killer robots from the future and then a killer robot from the future comes to kill him as a teenage boy and another robot from the future comes who has been commandeered by the future rebellion people. I'm going to spend the whole review on this um, <laughs> to protect John Connor. Okay. So Arnie becomes the good Terminator in the second film and then there were three other films that no one cared about and now we have the new film. Yeah. Uh, and the new film attempts to reboot the franchise from its last point of great success, which is Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Edward Furlong, Sarah Hamilton as the badass uh, commando mother, um, and Arnold Schwarzenegger as the good robot. So, <laughs> uh, so, look, I think it's very widely circulated information. Dan, can you give me a yes or a no on the spoiler I'm about to do? Uh,
2: that Arnold is in the movie?
5: No. John Connor dies at the beginning oh, of the movie, okay, right? Okay. And so at the beginning of Terminator Dark Fate, John Connor is killed by a stray Terminator, changing the course of history, and then we have um, a clean slate to set up a new set of kind of heroes and villains. And the heroes and villains in Terminator Dark Fate are uh, a young Mexican woman who, of no substantial uh, character or backstory. Um <laughs> her uh her partially her like what's the word when you have her cyborgy not cyborgy part human, yeah, enhanced, human enhanced human protector her played by Mackenzie Davis, who's this really amazing uh actress who looks makes a really great partially robot killing protecting machine. And then there's a Tuminator It's a new Terminator. It's not a Tuma. It's a There's a Terminator which is a new Terminator killer that is part steel mainframe Arnie version and part liquid, uh, Patrick Roberts version of the Terminator. This is only going to make sense to people who've seen the films.
2: I can't. Your your knowledge is quite encyclopedic for someone who didn't like the
5: movie. I love the first two films. They're amazing. Right. So basically, you've got a cast of women. uh, Linda Hamilton comes back. Sarah Connor. Hunting Terminators, grieving the death of her son.
0: Looking extraordinarily
5: like she did
0: 20 years ago, I've got to say.
5: Don't you think? She looks like an incredibly hot and powerful older woman version of herself 20 years ago. She is definitely a woman of advanced age, but she, one of the most interesting and rewarding things about the film is that they are not attempting to make her look like a younger woman. She's a fierce, old, strong, weathered woman. Okay. She doesn't look like she did 20 years ago. 60-year-old. I, <laughs> I, I, like I, I, I mean that she looks great. I yeah, guess. she looks yeah. phenomenal. She looks phenomenal, and um, and she's strong and she's great. There, are the women. there are two very strong, uh, women in this film: the the Mackenzie Davis Grace, Terminator protector character, and the Sarah Connor returned character. Who's, you know, she's an alcoholic and she's very bitter. Oh, which part of this are we going to talk about? Okay, so so the film is like it retreads many ideas, and the ideas that it doesn't retread that are new are uh, um, logically inconsistent and deeply oh, unsatisfying. No. The the Danny character, the Mexican <laughs>
1: <laughs> Danny, so genuinely upset. <laughs>
5: I'm so sorry. We all heard uh, it. Oh, no. well, you, have one, you have a responsibility to be
2: logical, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to, to at least it.
5: try. Mm. And if you're going to compl- w- wipe the slate clean, you're going to actually offend and alienate people who have loved the series, so you better be coming with the goods mm. to fill in that hole And they and they really don't. What is most disappointing about it is that there's, look, there are so many things that are disappointing about it. It's a very, like, tell-don't-show film. So characters are constantly explaining to you what's happening in the plot because they don't have time for the plot to evolve in any other way and it's it's, it's, boring and it's reductive and it's patronising, <laughs> not least when it's the Governor who's saying, I am now a robot with feelings because I am. Um, like, there's honestly oh. a whole scene where he's just like, I became a robot with feelings. <laughs> like, he just... <laughs> it's so... Awful, and it's you know his attempt to kind of sanitize <laughs> oh his God. images like, you know how Schwarzenegger, because famously Arnold Schwarzenegger in the second Terminator film because it his star had risen, didn't want to play this malevolent bad guy, so they turned him into this good guy that was protecting John Connor, and he had all this funny lines like I'll be back again. Yeah. and he just and he just takes it to the nth degree in this film and it's just embarrassing for everyone involved. But the thing of all of the things that are disappointing and boring and annoying about this film. <laughs> And there are many. (laughs) The thing that annoyed me the most, right, is that Danny, the new new savior of mankind, who just her entire role in the film is just to ask other people questions that will that will provoke the sharing of plot information. (laughs) Where are we going now? But why did that happen? (laughs) Why do I? Why do you feel that way? Like she just has no character. And then there's a there's a particular scene. And you're like, it's like, big reveal. She's the savior of mankind. Oh my God, she's a woman. Whoa. There's a scene when the, the prior to her being revealed as the savior of mankind, when uh, Sarah Connor is like, they just want you for your womb. You're going to give birth to the savior in this really like self denigrating way. And so, in the kind of feminist logic of this movie, being the female savior of mankind is. Definitely better than giving birth to the savior of mankind, becoming a commando badass, and giving him all the skills that he needs to become the savior of mankind. I am not a mother, but on behalf of mothers everywhere, block curious children. I'm like fuck you, Terminator, (laughs) Rise, Dark Fate. That is not okay. It is not okay. One of those things is not better than the other thing, and it's just the kind of self congratulatory, like diversity. Pat itself, patting on the back mentality of Hollywood that makes the men who made this film think that one of those things is better than the other. Because being a mum is a really important job. Oh, it's so well said. (laughs) It's
1: the (laughs) best. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I don't like it. it. I love it. I'm not a
5: fan. There is one really great scene where everyone's fighting and an airplane airplanes crashing out of the sky. Okay. And
2: James Cameron is involved?
5: He's a producer. Right. Apparently he and the director, Tim Miller, who made Deadpool, went like head to head, like really were pounding their um, fifths over this film and that is part of – it's thought to be one of the many reasons that led to its box office poison, six writers on board. Um, What is kind of notable from a film business point of view is that it is highly unlikely – that this franchise will be revived again because it has its last it four films have tanked, yeah, right. and this film has tanked. Huh? Yeah, had like hundred eighty. shot. <laughs> one more. Mm. I mean, people have a short memory. Who knows? Exactly. It's probably, I was watching it, thinking there's maybe a kid out here who's not f- familiar with the first two films and how great they are, or who just really loves and gets a real buzz out of seeing women on screen in, in these action hero roles that actually thinks this is great. They spend a lot of money on. Car and plane crashes, you know what I mean. So maybe, but it's it's this like slow erosion of of the quality of screenwriting. It's this slow erosion of the quality of storytelling that just makes me feel so depressed. And and you know we're just we're just kind of throwing all of our all these sacred like the Hangover Four, yeah, just like the Hangover Four <laughs> and the Hangover Two and Three. Uh,
2: well, as selfish as it is, I'm I'm pleased that you went to report back. Thank yeah. thanks so much,
3: Simone. Bye, guys.
4: Triple
3: ah.
1: had one of those well planned out nights last night. Oh yes, um, and, you know I had to. I had a gig on, um, but I, I knew that I'd be on early because I knew the guy that that runs it knows that I like to go on early. So, um, <laughs> you know, it was like this. I, you know, and I was going to drive in. So I drove into the city. It was like this, all right, get to the gig, go in, do it. Like it would be like about an hour that I was out of, out of the house. Um, and I was like I had a really, really late lunch and I went, I'll do that and then I'll come home and then I'll have have dinner. Like everything's perfect. Went, did the gig, was on second, the dream. Oh. So good. Um, did you know, seven minutes on stage, Well, thanks very much, I've got to go. he just walk straight out the door after he just walked off stage out the door? <laughs> I have done that before. but um, Just like Elvis. I had, to, I had to go back and pick up my, um, my stuff, had pick up my jumper, got that said goodbye to people, got out, found, you know, drive home Beautiful. and the whole time I'm thinking, good on me Not, I know that I've got um, food at home I'm not like driving around tr- thinking, what am I going to eat I haven't eaten and blah 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 and so, like, this is perfect, I'll go home watch a bit of telly, eat my microwave meal <laughs> and then and then hop into bed um, and then I arrive home and I open the door and then the dog's start barking and there's a bicycle in the hallway oh, and oh. then I'm like, what's What's happening? And then I just say hello, hello. And there are uh, – we've got visitors. Oh. We had visitors. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was not expecting visitors. Like I knew that I, we had one friend coming over to drop something off um, and uh, he'd brought a, a friend around. So there was a stranger in the house. It, it was fine. It was lovely. We sat down, had a glass of wine and had a chat. And were, it was great catching up and, and meeting and hanging out and stuff. But the whole time I was like, there was that moment of when I first arrived home, Was it was that, oh, I'm back in a share house.
0: Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, my God, the dread of opening the share house door and being like, oh, I've got to prepare myself for anything that could be in here yeah. right now. I don't know who's here. I don't know who I'm going to have to talk to.
1: Yeah. Oh. And just, I'm just going to go to my room. Thank goodness for my giant room that I can put a TV in. And, but it was, yeah, this moment I was just walking in going, oh, oh, hello, um, I'm on now, I'm all on the my dream. best behaviour. <laughs> I find that
0: hard because when I get home I feel like I walk in the door and I'm like, ugh, uh, like yeah. it all just unwinds now because I've lived effectively by myself with Andrew for a while. Mm. I, I'm so used to just coming home to my own space. Yeah. I don't know if I can deal with the anxiety of coming home to strangers anymore.
1: I know. Well, yeah, for, so it's been a few years and then but before that it was just, you know, Celia and I, so I knew the likelihood of unexpected people being around wasn't wasn't going to be there um but before that oh boy i've lived in some share houses mm. where it was like you just had no idea who was you know i lived in a party house at one stage you know
0: my least favorite share my least favorite share house experience is the sprung long term guest so i lived in one for a while where everyone had different ideas about People just being able to stay long term or short term. So, oh, yeah. so, a couple of my flatmates went away and they were going overseas for about a month. And at first, the whole thing started badly because they said, "Oh, we're just going to put someone in the room for a month." And I was like, nah, I'm not okay with it. I know, I know it might make renting easier, but I was like, I don't want to live with a stranger for a month. I don't yeah. live in like. I didn't come into this year because I come into this house knowing the people I live with. And I was like, I can't. So we had this kind of weird stand, stand off, off about that as well. And I was like, how would you feel if you had to live with a stranger for a month? You're going overseas and having a good time. I don't want to have some weirdo. I don't know. And then it was like, oh, my friends aren't weirdos. Anyway. But then when they did leave, I got home and my other housemate, who I didn't know, um, they'd moved in afterwards. He was like, this is my friend, whatever their name was. And I was like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And this really nice conversation. And he went, yeah, she's just going to be sleeping on the couch for um for a while. And I went, oh, Oh. oh, and you know when you're in front of the person yeah. and you're like, "Oh, you've done this to me," so I cannot like express with my face how upset I am. And I was like, "Just sleeping on the," I was like, "That the couch just there." And he's he's like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Oh yeah," it's nah. not okay. What's a what's a while? And he goes, "I don't know," like week, maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks. And I went, "How long did she stay?" She left that night. <gasps> well, because I, I was like, oh okay and i just was like i cannot react to this situation i remember going to my room and being like i cannot I, i'm like i can't have a stranger sleeping on my gas. like i just and, and i get that it's me like i'm the one who's not like all free and easy but i'm just not that person i've yeah. never been like the hey uh yeah,
1: stay over yeah, stay no over,
0: right uh and then i i, had a, I said i went out i was like oh, this can't happen <laughs>
1: Oh, really? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, But after she was in the toilet and I was like, I cannot handle her sleeping on the couch for two weeks. You've got to sort this out. Wow. I know, I know. Anyway, but she was a locksmith and it really freaked me out after that. She was just going to let herself in when I was out. <laughs> She probably did. I spent two weeks going, (laughs) is she just letting herself in at night? And I'll never know. Well, yeah, because we we had that uh, house guest last week who
2: arrived at midnight. Oh, that's right. And then Jessie went downstairs on, I think it was Halloween. And then I heard this blood-curdling scream. And then I I came home very late last night uh, and the place was pitch black, but there was very loud classical music playing.
1: Oh my god! Oh my
2: god, what between
0: these earwigs and the spiders spurting out of your barges so, so I was like, oh.
2: And, and ordinarily, I would. I'm very happy to play up to. Like, if if I know if someone's coming around the corner and I know it's going to scare the hell out of them to see me, I won't say anything. I'll let it happen. Yeah. Because <laughs> I enjoy the thrill. It's harmless fun. Yeah. Um, and but but because Jessie's pregnant, I was like. Ugh. I bet not scare her. <laughs> and I felt she doesn't know what a sacrifice that was. <laughs> I don't think so either. No one does. Uh, but but I actually don't know who would have been more was she scary. was sitting in the dark. She was sitting, was sitting cla- in the dark, listening yeah. to classical music. Yeah. Why?
0: In the
1: dark, she's
2: pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's late. I mean, I, I love that pregnancy can explain your weird behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Is it she? She listens to classical music anyway, but it was yeah. loud. Maybe it was loud so the baby could hear it. I don't know.
1: But Is why that... in the dark? I well, think that's the. There's a combination like oh, I, sitting in the dark, no problem. Yeah, right? and listening to classic classical music, no problem, love it. But combining it. It's That's, very, it's yeah, like, it's it, creepy. It's it was going to be
0: like a raven tapping at the window. Yeah, yeah. it
2: was very, it was dramatic music <laughs> yeah. as well. I didn't know what was going on.
0: So it's like, hello. So yeah, it's like a horror movie <laughs> How do you, And how do you, ar- oh yeah, there's no, also no way that you can't be creepy in that situation. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's lose-lose in terms yeah. of the um, startling factor. And but but yeah, like who was going to be more scary—the person listening to yeah. <laughs> threatening, or class you walking in, dark, in, or me in the dark not announcing myself? Oh. It was a creep off. Oh.
1: Anyway, you won. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> ah,
2: that's right, Triple R.